This is Dr. Guy. And this is Dr. John. Two brothers from other mothers. Welcome to Diseases, Death, and Doctors. If it's your first time, we'd like to welcome you to The Pod, a storytelling podcast that discusses the non-chronologic history of medicine, because it is easier that way. I spend way too much time preparing as a father and as a physician. Today we're going to discuss one of our... <laughs> that was a non sequitur, or like a hanging chad of a comment there. <laughs> All my chads are hanging, Dr. John. Um, today we're going to discuss one of our godfathers of medicine, Mr. William Stuart Halstead. So buckle up, buttercups, and let's begin. I started to think of different names for this episode. The working title so far is World Class Surgeon and Early Cocaine Aficionado. <laughs> Another one I thought of was William Halstead. Toot, toot. <laughs> uh, the Casey Jones of his day. That's right. <laughs> what do you know about Mr. Halstead, the good doctor? He came after Osler, right? Osler was the OOG, and then he brought they... on Halstead. If I am, I, I might be incorrect on this, but I always thought Welch was kind of the um, kind of the producer of the Hopkins Quartet. <laughs> He's the guy that basically kind of put everybody in touch with one another and kind of brought them all together. He was the George Martin. He was, or the Epstein, <laughs> the Mister Brian Epstein. Indeed. <laughs> and we'll talk a little bit more about Little Willie. <laughs> A.K.A. William Halstead, who was born on a day in September. Some of us call that day the 23rd. In 1852 in New York City. He would be... <laughs> Nobody gets that reference. <laughs> Is that Pace Picante? It was. <laughs> there was at least one person out. You got it. New York City. <laughs> I did that more for myself. It wasn't necessarily for our audience. Okay. <laughs> Um, anyway, he was, uh, would be the, the eldest of four children, um, which I have to admit is pretty impressive. Uh, his parents were definitely rolling the dice to only have, uh, four children in the 19th century in New York city. Um, his dad, <laughs> with that said, also William Halstead, uh, was a businessman with Halstead Haynes and company, uh, an organization that supplied dry goods. <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if his dad was like into coffee? <laughs> <laughs> Import export. Just the brown powder to the white powder. <laughs> um, anyway, it was said that his dad was very involved in the community, including medical organizations. Uh, he was well respected and held significant influence as he came from an extremely wealthy English family. There's nothing <laughs> funny about that. Why did you say it like that? <laughs> you guys can't see this because this is an audio medium, but Dr. Guy did like a little shoulder shrug there. <laughs> Extremely wealthy English family. We're some wild and crazy guys. <laughs> That's what I call my English shimmy. Anyway, so William Halstead Jr. was actually homeschooled until the age of 10. This could be a potential cause of his cocaine addiction later in life, no, no telling, um, at which time he was sent to boarding school in Massachusetts. Halstead would go on to college at Yale in 1870, where he was the captain of the football team. He played baseball and rode on the crew team, but underachieved academically. 
Um, his biggest collegiate setback, however, was his snubbing, they say, by the Yale Secret Society Skull and Bones. It was said that despite his general popularity, he demonstrated a caustic wit that sometimes left a sting and that led some of the offended upperclassmen to block his election. Hence, it doesn't appear that Halstead ever had the opportunity to drink from the bitter skull. Wasn't this like the plot of the social network? I mean, with Halstead? No. <laughs> no, uh, the, the, the Facebook founding. Didn't that loser want to be in he the did. skull and bones too? He did. Everybody wants to drink from the bitter skull. Okay. Very few get the opportunity. <laughs> um, his admittance, however, may have led him to further jump down the rabbit hole that was his career in medicine. It was during this time, his senior year, that he began to attend lectures at the Yale Medical School and began studying books covering anatomy and physiology. Oh, so what? What? I thought that was Harvard. Was the secret society skull and bones? Is there nope. one at Yale? Definitely Yale. Yep, Yale. 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 What's the Harvard one then? It's not Skull and Keys or Skull and Bones. Okay. There's a lot of secret societies in the all these. I mean, there's secret societies even at our shitty state schools that I attended. <laughs> <laughs> I they are old enough to know about any of those. <laughs> they are, but everywhere. The machine that controls the network of politics within your local schools and communities. The puppet masters. All right, we'll scratch all of that, what I said about the social network. <laughs> he wanted to be in something. <laughs> okay. A fraternity? Yeah, maybe. Maybe I haven't seen that movie in a while. <laughs> it's all this quinine I'm drinking that's clouding my judgment. He wanted to be in the uh, the book club. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't let Mark in the book club. <laughs> anyway, um... So while Halstead failed to impress academically during his time as Yale, as previously noted, he is said to have hit his stride as a medical student at the College of Physicians and Surgeons, although for only a limited period of time. Uh, he never completed his medical school training uh, initially. Um, Halstead was said to have experienced burnout after about two years of medical school, complaining of his memory not working correctly. Amongst other things, <laughs> that can be problematic in the school of medicine. <laughs> uh -huh. He would retreat to Block Island in Rhode Island, where he continued his studies, but on his own. And he did so while engaging in activities like fishing and sailing. Ah, the life of a wealthy Englishman. <laughs> <laughs> Father, med school's hurting my brain. I'm going to go sailing and fish for a bit at our summer home. Rock Island. When the stresses, yeah. <laughs> His uh, more balanced approach paid off, though, as he decided to apply for an internship at the renowned Bellevue Hospital in New York, despite the fact that the position was only open to students with medical degrees. Luckily, it was the 19th century in the United States, and medical degrees were a mere formality. Halstead would score so highly on the competitive entrance exam also required for consideration that he was awarded the internship for house surgeon at Bellevue, where he would remain in training for the next year. What were they <laughs> teaching back then? This is how you bleed somebody. This, <laughs> this is, is how you properly connect a leech to, to one's <laughs> forehead. Now, when you're doing your timpanning, you don't <laughs> want to go too deep. <laughs> 
His internship, in spite of its title, kept him primarily on the medical wards, but he was able to assist with some surgical operations. While the hospital was very well respected in both the medical and local community, like many hospitals of the time, the conditions were very unsanitary, to say the least. Uh, sterilization was not an appreciated priority, and interns such as Halstead would often run about the hospital carrying buckets of pus from the patient's postoperative wounds. Could be a game to see who fills their bucket the crookest. <laughs> Buckets of pus. That's not something that awful. We Delicious. That's something we deal with on a routine basis. I don't no. know. Maybe as a surgeon, you deal with that more. But... The pus bucket relay. No. Um, so Bob- anyway, what were you saying? Bobbing for pustules. Oh, gosh. Um, Joseph Lister, an English physician that we will cover in detail on another day, introduced the use of antiseptic around 1867. The technique would be introduced to Halstead as an intern at Bellevue. Halstead was taken by the significant improvement in patient outcomes and reduction in hospital-associated gangrenous infections, although he perhaps was just a little sad that it took him longer to fill up his pus bucket than it once did, but... (laughs) The drastic improvement sparked an interest in Halstead that would inspire many of his decisions and discoveries over the course of his storied career. Halstead would finally earn his Doctor of Medicine degree in 1877, and at that time would finally finish at the top of his class. He would become a house physician at New York Hospital and would introduce the hospital chart. Ah, Halstead, so you're the one that we have to thank for all the paperwork, which also ironically means he was just simply the first person to regularly write write down patient information. (laughs) (laughs) Groundbreaking. Lots of uh, HIPAA violations. That's right. (laughs) Um, So his his chart would track patients' vital signs, heart rate, blood pressure, temp, respirations. And was uh, it was at the New York hospital that Halstead would meet a man that would become a lifelong friend, the pathologist, William H. Welch. The American medical landscape lacked advanced education opportunities during the 19th century. Uh, Remember, the idea of medical residency did not exist yet. So like many of the leading American physicians of his time, Halstead would have to travel to Europe and would spend an extended period working in the great European clinics as the quality of medical training was significantly better overseas. Halstead would study under the tutelage of several prominent surgeons and scientists. He would form relationships in Europe that would last his lifetime, and during his time overseas, he was gifted unlimited access to the resources of some of his closest mentors, including the Austrian surgeon Anton Wolfler. He also arrived in Europe at a time that cancer was just beginning to be studied more widely, making his timing inadvertently ideal. Halstead, upon returning to New York City in 1880, or quickly became one of New York's finest surgeons. He had operating privileges at several New York hospitals and energetically talked his work. He would convince Bellevue Hospital to invest approximately $10,000 in the construction of a surgical tent. That's an expensive-ass tent. Um, in which he could practice the idea of antiseptic surgery. (laughs) (laughs) He had so many tents for that nowadays. Go to REI, (laughs) just tents for days. (laughs) I've got an idea. Just bear with me. I want you to build me a tent. And we're going to operate on a lot of people in here. But once you go in the tent, it's going to be different than if you're outside of the tent. It's going to be cleaner inside the tent than outside the tent. (laughs) 
Anyway, uh, it was then that he began teaching, but when he taught, he ignored the prior classroom structure and embraced a more hands-on approach. He was charismatic and inspiring and was extremely popular with his students at the time. Halstead would go on to perform one of the first gallbladder surgeries in the United States. The surgery was performed at 2 a.m. on his mother. <laughs> I don't have any supplemental material regarding Halstead's relationship with his mother before the surgery. Very healthy. <laughs> that vile, cantankerous bitch. I'll teach her. <laughs> I was thinking more of a overly pampered son, but um, you went to... Uh... <laughs> Thanks, Phil, son, there. <laughs> anyway, uh, he performed the said cholecystectomy on the kitchen table and removed seven gallstones, and his mother would completely recover. Likely, it was because she wasn't in a hospital, which were still gaining an understanding and embracing Lister's antiseptic techniques. It was, okay. obviously, it was obviously an open uh, lap Yeah. Gully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, an open. <laughs> it wasn't a lap goalie. It was Da Vinci uh, assisted. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that he removed the whole gallbladder? Or do you think he just cut it open and removed I think he just cut it open and then popped the stones out. And then sewed up the gallbladder and the incision? Yep. Mm -hmm. oh. That would be my guess. If I were a gambling man. <laughs> Gotta know when to hold him. <laughs> know when to fold him. New York City. <laughs> Halstead also is credited with performing one of the first emergency blood transfusions in the United States. Again, with a family member as his guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> what did that type in screen and cross match look like? <laughs> it was not existent. However, he was, he, he wisely chose uh, both the donor and recipient. Uh, his sister would actually suffer from a significant postpartum hemorrhage. Uh, she was found listless from blood loss. And in a bold move, Halstead then withdrew his own blood, transfused it into his sister, and then operated it to save her life. That's kind of pretty badass. <laughs> Kudos there. Yeah. <laughs> but um, unfortunately, his rapid rise to success would be derailed by his inadvertent addiction to cocaine. <laughs> All right. Quick. How many different names for cocaine can you come up with? Uh, white gold, white powder, yayo, yay, yak, yeah. uh, sneef, blow, <laughs> blow. I feel like we're leaving out some obvious ones here. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> all of our hip young listeners can probably yeah, write us. in and help us. Yeah, write in and help us. <laughs> all right. Share, uh, his addiction was acquired through self-experimentation on the anesthetic properties of the drug. I'm pretty sure that's what happened to Rick James, too. Oh. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. Super freak. <laughs> Halstead had read a report by an Austrian, I was about to say Australian, but it's Austrian, Ophthalmologist Carl Kohler describing the anesthetic power of cocaine when instilled on the surface of the eye. Hall said, <laughs> <laughs> What about my nose? <laughs> Hall said, and his students and fellow physicians experimented on each other and demonstrated that cocaine could produce safe and effective local anesthesia when applied topically 
and when injected. Halstead insisted on injecting himself with the drug to test it prior to using it on his patients during surgeries. <laughs> what, a, what a noble man. <laughs> has, has anyone tested this batch for impurities? No? Okay, I'm going to sacrifice myself in the name of medicine. Dr. Paul, get my spoon, a tourniquet, a Bunsen burner, and a needle, something large bore. Oh, and put on that record of trippy flute music again. <laughs> Music. <laughs> oh, that's good. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Every script I write for Oxycode. <laughs> One for me, just to make sure. That to make sure it's of the highest quality. <laughs> it's in the process. Halstead and some of his colleagues became addicted to the narcotic. Of all of his colleagues, only Halstead and one other physician by the name of Richard Hall were the only ones who became addicted that would actually survive their cocaine problems. All the rest died. Despite his addiction, Halstead maintained an active surgical and academic career. Impressive and also concerning. (laughs) And at the same time, not surprising. I know. (laughs) He never needed sleep. Um, despite his addiction, Halstead maintained an active surgical and academic career. However, his addiction was not without clues to those who worked with him regularly. One large clue was presented to all of New York City (laughs) when Halstead published an article in the New York Medical Journal in 1885 that was entirely incoherent. (laughs) The topic? Cocaine! (laughs) (laughs) Where was the peer review there? (laughs) That's what I was thinking of. I was like, today your peers would like shut that down before it was disseminated to like all the world to review, but they were probably like, F this guy. (laughs) They wrote back, looks great, William. (laughs) Next issue, we'll get you in there. (laughs) Cocaine, hell of a drug. Hell of a drug. Hell of a drug. All work and no no play makes William a dull boy. (laughs) So after reviewing the article, his close friend, Harvey Firestone, recognized the gravity of the situation and arranged for Halstead to be abducted and put aboard a steamer headed headed for Europe. In the two weeks it took to complete the voyage, Halstead underwent an early and crude detoxification process, which I have to admit would be a terrible detox, I would assume. Not that I've ever gone through it myself, but detoxification, A, and B, you're doing it on a ship where you're just completely tossed around on the open sea. Sounds absolutely miserable. I'm trying to think how we treat... We don't really see a lot of... I mean, I'm sure there's cravings, but detox. Like, we have a lot of uh, meth washout. Yeah. So people are just like super sleepy. I'm sure there are cravings like once they wake up. None of this is anywhere in my wheelhouse. Don't have yeah. to worry about it. But you know, benzos, alcohol um, are the deadly ones. And then opioids are pretty darn uncomfortable. But I'm not sure that we see a lot of super symptomatic cocaine detox. I could be mistaken. It's happened before. Nope. <laughs> just about the social network also who's trying to get into the club the phoenix the all phoenix. right the phoenix is what mark zuckerberg was trying to get into at harvard that what are they uh, it's like a secret society or something club asking me follow-up questions one of six male final clubs at harvard college 
Sounds fancy. Mm-hmm. Which traces its earliest roots to 1895. That makes it a young young buck compared to the skull and bones. It is. They all wear matching underpants and. <laughs> do, do they? <laughs> I don't know. Chant. <laughs> you seem to know a lot about this. <laughs> all right. So. Yes, says crude detoxification. Unfortunately, not soon after his return to the United States, he again fell back into the pit of addiction. After his relapse, he was sent to Butler Sanatorium in Providence, Rhode Island for seven months, where they cured, quote unquote, his cocaine addiction by giving him morphine. (laughs) Whammo. I got 99 problems, but cocaine ain't one. Morphine is. Um, he would remain dependent upon morphine for the remainder of his life. The second escapade uh, associated with his addiction to cocaine ended his medical career in New York City. Um, in fact, before uh, the cocaine hunger fastened its dreadful hold upon him, he was perceived as a brilliant and happy extrovert. However, he would leave New York City as an isolated and agitated man. But... It was while the young Halstead was in the throes of dealing with the consequences of his addiction that his friend, none other than William Welch, invited him to come live with him in Baltimore and work in his labs. (laughs) You can take the red pill or the blue pill. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a great candidate to go to Hopkins. (laughs) You're the one. (laughs) Um, There... He joined several brilliant men that harvested a community of intellectual excitement and companionship that worked to help Halstead some solve some, but not all of his personal problems. Halstead, Halstead would open a surgical office while in Baltimore and immediately received a good deal of positive notoriety as the result of his several successful surgeries within the city. Of course, today we know that Halstead would never beat his addiction. Um, as previously stated, and it would be a lifelong disease. However, he did learn to control and hide the addiction to a degree. His eventual appointment to the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine as one of the original big four physicians should be a testament to his ability, as his colleagues were aware of his abuse history, yet he was still offered a position at the fledgling School of Medicine, albeit on a trial basis. In his little black book, William Osler described Halstead as having Quote, a sharp tongue in a very cynical manner, he never played to the gallery. His perceived standoffishness was much in the way of his popularity, but beneath the crust, people learned his true worth. His high standard was lived up to faithfully, and he had a severe contempt for anything that fell short of that standard. I never knew a more conscientious, or sorry, conscientious, I can't say it, <laughs> conscientious, <laughs> a conscientious surgeon. He would be appointed surgeon-in-chief to the hospital. The opportunity allowed him to channel his energies and intellect toward teaching and research, an alternative to the constant restraints of addiction, resulting in what many would agree is one, if not the most productive and influential careers in the history of American surgery. It is said that he was never able to reduce his daily morphine injection to less than between 1.5 to 3 grains per day. I have no idea what uh, grains are in terms of milligrams or I can't, I cannot convert that into a modern (laughs) metric. (laughs) A grain is like the size of a small pebble. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, this information was supplied by Osler in his diary, and it is suggested that while close friends, there is also likely a patient-doctor relationship shared between the two, two colleagues. Osler would go on to say, this surgeon might have dropped out and disappeared a martyr in the cause of mm-hmm. science, um, while others certainly did, but not he. During the long years of struggle against the dreadful discomfort of drug hunger, his stature grew. He became a man of imperishable memory among surgeons, a hero in the story of medicine. Halstead of Johns Hopkins, end quote. <laughs> Thank you for reading it like that. I know. That's a tall compliment coming from an internist. Mm-hmm. They mostly assume a surgeon types are just involved in scorched earth medicine. <laughs> <laughs> Remove the offending pathology. <laughs> Well, they were both, you know, forging their way through the wilderness back then. They were they were allies. Uh, compared to his teaching in New York, Halstead's teaching was declining to some degree at Hopkins, um, likely the product of his continued but suppressed fight with addiction and morphine. Um, he was said to pay attention to specific students and ignore the rest. Um, but if he paid attention to you, um, those students he ended up giving those residents unprecedented learning experiences because of the amount of responsibility he awarded them. And during these years at Johns Hopkins, he's credited with multiple achievements in the surgical world. So despite the transient nature of his teaching and his lifelong drug addiction, addiction, his surgical skill and attention to detail remained unparalleled. Halstead had the reputation as charging significant fees for his surgical services as well. (laughs) Exuberant prices. A habit that often frustrated the Hopkins Board of Trustees because Hopkins, as if you recall in season one, the hospital was actually built in an indigent area of Baltimore with the intention of supplying medical care to those who were most in need. Um, What did he need the money for? (laughs) (laughs) His three grains of morphine. Um, he was said to have secured quite a good income from a very <laughs> from very few patients as a result. In fact, he didn't keep regular office hours, nor did he even bother to hang a quote-unquote door plate. Osler would say, he once charged a patient of mine $10,500, the cost of a little more of that sterile tent <laughs> he uh, built a few years back um, for a gallstone operation. Um, a serious protracted case that would require two operations. And the woman recovered well, however. Now, she was wealthy, and he really didn't have much of a conscience in the matter of charges. But then again, he had the feeling of a high-class artist about the value of his work, unquote. Um, despite the extravagant fees, he was also described, though, as a generous man who was always ready to hand out for all sorts of purposes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Um, so Halstead was credited with starting the first formal surgical residency training program in the United States at Johns Hopkins. He springboarded off his friend and colleague William Osler's idea for a continued structured mentorship in general medicine. Halstead otherwise based the structure on the ideas that he obtained in Europe, especially those of the Germans, the Austrians, and the Swiss. This would create the foundation for surgery residency training programs in place today in the United States. The program began with an internship of an undefined length. Um, Individuals advanced after and only after Halstead believed they were ready for the next level of training. (laughs) So hopefully you were one of the people we paid attention to. (laughs) 
I just love this. Just like, let's pause here. The guy that created the modern surgical residency, just a hellscape for current residents, was a cocaine addict who did not keep regular office hours and gave his uh, quote unquote residents a lot of freedom to do whatever they wanted. <laughs> the guy just was fucking high all the time and didn't want to work and found a bunch of poor bastards <laughs> to do the work for him while he charged exorbitant fees. Like it is hilarious that we base the surgical residency off of this model. It was the ultimate pyramid scheme. And at the top of that pyramid, him just doing a fat line of yay. <laughs> Dr. Halstead, sir, I've been doing this internship for four years. Do you think I'm ready for for my first real year of residency? Uh. <laughs> ask, ask me next week. <laughs> it's really not a good time to discuss that. <laughs> Daddy Halstead needs to take a long break. Follow that that white brick road all the way to Oz. <laughs> so, so once you did advance to the next level of training, once you met enlightenment per Halstead, um, that was then followed by six years as an assistant resident. This is kind of like uh, the religion of Buddhism. <laughs> Um, after those six years as an assistant resident, there were then two years as a house surgeon. Um, and this program was essentially established or developed to create role models and teachers for the next generation of surgeons. Halstead trained many of the prominent academic surgeons of the time, including Harvey Williams Cushing and Walter Dandy, founders of the Surgical Subspecialty of Neurosurgery, and also Hugh H. Young, the founder of the specialty urology. So what are some of Halstead's surgical contributions? Well, following his time in Europe, Halstead held the brie, or sorry, Halstead held the belief that cancers spread through the bloodstream, which led him to think that sufficient local removal of the tumor would cure the cancer. This led him to perform the first radical mastectomy for breast cancer in the United States in 1882. It was an operation first performed in France a century earlier by Bernard Perde, or a surgeon that lived from 1735 to 1804. So that's impressive. Maybe maybe he deserves the episode. Um, <laughs> and one that Halstead had observed a German surgeon perform with even more uh, with even a more aggressive approach to remove cancerous tumors from the breast. But despite the aggression, many patients still relapsed. Another surgeon, an Englishman by the name of Charles Moore, believed that even more breast tissue should be removed and doctors who were trying to save the woman from disfigurement were doing them a disservice. Halstead took this consideration to the next level, eventually resorting to removing the pectoralis major, the lymph nodes near the collarbone and lymph nodes near the armpit. Halstead presented his findings at the American Surgical Association Conference in New Orleans in 1898, concluding that the procedure significantly decreased the percentage of local recurrence. Now, it should be said that it is now known that survival from breast cancer is more closely related to how much of the cancer has spread before the surgery, uh, rather than how much is removed during the surgery. I mean, I guess along those lines, you could say the best way to prevent a gangrenous toe from spreading is to cut off the leg. I think that, that was his idea. <laughs> <laughs> so despite the, this evolution and understanding, his surgical technique and competence significantly contributed to our growing wealth of knowledge on the topic. 
Um, Halstead created multiple techniques for surgery. Um, so damage to tissues and blood supply would be minimized. Some of these new advances included different types of forceps, sutures, and ligatures. As one of the first proponents of hemostasis, which is strange for a surgeon, <laughs> I'm a real big believer in stopping the bleeding. <laughs> Um, and one of the initial investigators into wound healing, Halstead revolutionized surgery by insisting on skill and technique rather than brute strength, pioneering what has become known as Halstead's principles, modern surgical principles of control of bleeding using accurate anatomical dissection, complete sterility, exact approximation of tissue and wound closures without excess, excessive tightness and with the gentle handling of tissues. <laughs> What a brilliant man. <laughs> Just don't go in there and hulk out. <laughs> he handles the tissue so gently, it's because I can't feel my fingers from all this cocaine. Am I touching it? I can't even tell. <laughs> Dr. Hall said, you're still three feet away from the incision. <laughs> You've been working on the same suture line for two days, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny. You'll see why I'm coming up. Um, so using experimental approaches, he developed new operations for intestinal and gastric surgery, Golson removal, hernia repair, disorders of the thyroid gland, and arterial aneurysm surgeries. Thanks largely to Halstead, surgeons worldwide began wearing gloves during operations. That shift came about after one of his nurses, Caroline Hampton, who he would later marry, um, complained. <laughs> so basic Halstead. Anyway, complained. <laughs> That's the Halstead principle. Right <laughs> so uh, Ms. Hampton complained that the mercuric chloride, one of the harsh antiseptics used, resulted in severe contact dermatitis and painful eczema. Uh, he asked the Goodyear Rubber Company then to try and make two pairs of thin rubber gloves to protect her hands. His surgical assistants were quick converts and began to wear them during operations, swearing that the gloves made them more dexterous. The idea that the gloves also might help in germ control actually did not occur to any of them until years later. Um, after the fact was proven by Dr. Joseph Colt Bloodgood, great name for a surgeon, by the way, um, Halstead would later remark, somewhat bemused, long after the fact, quote, operating in gloves was an evolution rather than an inspiration or happy thought, unquote. Halstead said, um, <clears throat> quote, and it is remarkable that during the four or five years when as an operator, I wore them only occasionally, we could have been so blind as to not have perceived the necessity for wearing them invariably at the time or invariably at the operating table. Just fucking just a blind <laughs> guy looking for nickels. Like, <laughs> it was right there. <laughs> oh God. To be a to be a medical practitioner back then. We need I mean, to that probably goes long. before we stick them in somebody. Do you think the first person to wear a condom wore one for contraceptive purposes or because they wanted to decrease the sensation he felt so he would last longer? I'm going to have to cut that. <laughs> I'm going to have to cut that right out of here. <laughs> but seriously, answer the question. What do you think? <laughs> I think it was probably to prevent disease. I've never considered it before, but potentially it could have been an accidental discovery. <laughs>
Um, all right, so let's see. Because they definitely existed before people knew the spread of disease. <laughs> I just, think it was more for contraception. Just next. <laughs> let's do a, we should do one on the story, the history of contraception. That'd be a good topic. That would be a good topic. Look at you. Just creative juices flowing from your fingertips. You got to wear gloves. <laughs> I know. All right. We digress. So H.L. Mencken considered Halstead the greatest physician of the whole Johns Hopkins group. And Mencken's praise for his achievements when he reviewed Dr. McCollum's 1930 biography is a memorable tribute. Quote, his contributions to surgery were numerous and various. He introduced the use of local anesthetics. He was the first to put on rubber gloves and he devised many new and ingenious operations. But his chief service was rather more general and hard to describe. It was to bring in a new and better way of regarding the patient. Antisepsis and asepsis coming in when he was so young had turned the attention of surgeons to external and often extraneous things. Fighting germs, they tended to forget the sick man on the operating table. Dr. Halstead changed all that. He showed that manhandled tissues, though they could not yell, could yet suffer and die. He studied the natural recuperative powers of the body and showed how they could be made to help the patient. He stood against reckless slashing and taught that a surgeon must walk very warily. Dr. William Mayo, one of the er, co-founders of the Mayo Clinic, once commented that Dr. Halstead took so long to perform procedures that the patients usually healed before he had a chance to close the incision. <laughs> That's a pretty baller quote. <laughs> <laughs> Ties back into your comment. <laughs> Though like most men of his craft, he had no religion, but he revived and reinforced the ancient saying of the famous Ambrose Perry, who we're actually going to talk about in another episode. Um, God cured him. I, but assisted. Um, above all, he was a superb teacher in the operating theater. The young men who went out from his operating room were magnificently trained and are among the great ornaments of American surgery today. Kind words. Mm -hmm. Halstead would die on September 7th, 1922, 16 days short of his 70th birthday, secondary to bronchopneumonia as a complication following a cholecystectomy. He probably should have just performed it on himself. Um, <laughs> but uh, today, the Johns Hopkins Surgical Service is named in his honor. What's it called? Halstead. <laughs> Just the team is Halstead? Yeah, it took me a long time to figure out. I was like, is that the doctor we're calling? Or is it the, are we paging surgery? And they're like, yeah, just page Halstead. And I'm like, but is he on service right now? Or is it? <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't been on for a hundred years, bro. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, didn't Osler die of pneumonia as well? He did, didn't he? I think he died in the flu of 19, uh, 1918, right? Yeah, it's 1918. It's after right. the um, World War. Yeah. Pneumonia. The the killer of the old man. Also yep. the cholecystectomy that is <laughs> residence botched. <laughs> this is what you get for not letting me graduate from my internship for yeah. six years, <laughs> asshole. <laughs> Oh, well, thanks for uh, walking us through that, Dr. Guy. I, di I didn't, I know more about Osler and less about Halstead, but that was really interesting. I mean, they're all impressive. Welch, Kelly, Osler, Halstead. 
all of these guys will get their own episode, I'm sure, in due time. But since I'm writing them, Halstead got the first. <laughs> <laughs> That's only fitting. Well, but, well, that was fun. Um, you know, listeners, I hope you guys have a holly jolly holiday season. Yeah, we record these uh, in real time, so yeah, <laughs> this is coming to you fresh off the presses. It's a couple days before Christmas right now. A lot of podcasts, they're phoning in in the holiday season. Not Triple D. No. <laughs> you will not find another medical podcast talking about the history of medicine that's more up-to-date than us. <laughs> we couldn't wait 98 years. And three weeks to put out this. It had to be 98 years in one week. <laughs> Take no time on off here. That is four-star rating, gold-star recommendation standard, if I've all, ever seen or heard of it myself. All two of you listeners out there. Tell we your love friends. each of you. <laughs> the the each dedication. Of, <laughs> each of you get a, a big kiss, little kiss, little kiss, big kiss. Well, <laughs> do that outro music. <laughs> so like my good friend Halstead said, everybody's got something to hide, except for me and my monkey. Halstead? <laughs> William Halstead said that? Yeah. Did he have a real monkey, or was this a cocaine dream? <laughs> I think that's a Beatles song, but... <laughs> oh, I was like, I completely missed that in my... I feel like if he had a monkey, I would have known about it. <laughs> His monkey was also addicted to cocaine. (laughs) Yeah, clearly. (laughs) He kept running through them. They all died of cardiac arrest. (laughs) He was addicted to one to five grains of morphine. (laughs) Half of his daily portion went to his... If the monkey didn't receive his ration, he became very angry. (laughs) Halstead got tired of testing it himself, so he got a monkey to test it for him. (laughs) Make sure it was good. Hey, all said, what do you want to do tonight? <laughs> you want to go pick up some ladies? <laughs> it's a family guy that just has the monkey that just points. <laughs> I think it is. It's got to be family guy. Oh, okay. Well, just to clarify, Halstead did not have a monkey as far as we know. But we can neither confirm nor deny the existence of a monkey in his life somewhere. Although some would say, metaphorically, that he had a monkey on his back in the form of cocaine addiction. Oh, hey he did have a monkey. <laughs> All right, listeners, cheers. Stay safe. <laughs>